0: Welcome to episode 22 of Building Blocks for Brennan. Today, I connect with Tarek Fancy, the CEO and founder of the Rumi Initiative. Rumi is a non-for-profit tech startup that offers a unique approach to education. Their mission is to deliver a free, innovative, and authentic digital learning experience for anyone, anywhere, to bridge the gap between school and the real world by offering courses such as financial literacy. All while doing this, they have a unique mechanic, similar to social media, to make their learning more exciting and enticing, to allow individuals to keep learning as they go in bite-sized formats. However, prior to starting Rumi, Tark was the CIO or Chief Investment Officer at BlackRock Capital. If you're unfamiliar with BlackRock, they're one of the largest financial firms, investing over $9 trillion, yes, trillion with a T, team. While trying to make Wall Street more green, he realized that it was just a bunch of greenwashing and marketing and that there was no real social impact being made, and that's why he decided to make an impact for himself. Since then, Rumi has been one of COVID success stories. Initially launching in May of 2020, they published their 100th course, or bite, in July of 2020. Since then, they've been on a rocket ship of growth. They have over 102,000 active learners in over 176 countries with 900 active bytes now or active courses with an average completion of 7,000. This was a great conversation to have with Tarek to really learn his story going from the tops of the financial world to creating a social impact startup that is really making a difference in the most remote parts of the world. Over the podcast, we talk about some of the initiatives they have in the coming year trying to connect with individuals in the most remote parts of the world to allow education for everyone to make it not only accessible, but allow everyone to have the ability to succeed with the power of knowledge. Hopefully you guys enjoy this episode, learn a bit more about some of the social impacts being made across the world, and take a look at roomie.org to check out some of the cool courses they have that could benefit anyone to learn a bit more in a bite-sized format. Hopefully you guys enjoy this episode and subscribe. Hey, Tarek. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I guess to start off, you know, you have quite a interesting background worked with working within the finance world, working now within the, um, I guess, the education world in in general. Cause to start off, what is your background? Kind of who are you as a person? And then we can talk a bit more about rooming, and kind of your future initiatives as well.
1: Absolutely! So glad glad to to be here, and thanks for having me. And a quick background on myself. I mean, I've I've kind of had a career that's bounced around a little bit, probably not unlike a lot of other people these days. My passion was to do something international development with social impact, you know, to to drive change in the kind of way I want to see in the world. At the end of undergrad, um, I, instead of doing that, I missed out on some big scholarship I wanted to win and I went into finance instead because the investment banks appeared on campus. They hoover Mm -hmm. up people like I was who good grades, but, you know, didn't really know what to do next so I spent a, a, a long career that kept kind of getting promoted, and I eventually moved to an, an investment firm, and I became the youngest partner. And it was kind of, it was a nice run. And then about sort of 10, 12 years into it, after I'd even done an MBA and stuff, I kind of had this itch because I was like, I actually want to do something social impact. And I would had a really good friend of mine who, with whom I did business school, he, you know, he and I had the same itch. And so um, long story short, we didn't do anything because after business school, we went back to finance. But then uh, a few years after he was diagnosed with stage four cancer, Um, sometimes if you're close to someone, you can live something vicariously through them. And so I saw firsthand how, you know, what he really cared about when he knew his his time was running out because with with stage four melanoma, it's really a question of time rather than a question of chance. That led to me founding Rumi, uh, which uh, makes learning easy and fun through technology and began doing work to bring free learning, even to as far flung places as Syrian refugee camps for girls and women in Afghanistan, like just also all across North America, grew it quite a bit um, and had some great success. And then that lured me back into, that kind of got me back into the finance game because every big bank was saying, oh, we want to do impact investing and sustainable investing and responsible. And I found this myself in this position of kind of understanding both sides of it. Mm -hmm. And so I, in 2018 became uh, BlackRock's first ever chief investment officer for sustainable investing globally uh, BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world, and I think in history they have nine trillion dollars under management mm-hmm. with a, with a T. So very very big and very very powerful of the biggest of the you know the heavyweights sitting in New York or globally. Um, and I went in and did it for close to two years and came to the conclusion that frankly most of what Wall Street is doing is greenwashing. Mm-hmm. And I say that you know as a former investor who was trained in it, went back into the system, understood how to do social impact and financial you know profits and found that, um, you know, it wasn't a win-win, right? It, it, there was a win for finance and they were clearly making money off it, but nothing underneath was really changing in the system. And so I went public earlier this year arguing that, um, uh, you know, that that this is greenwashing and it's actually dangerous because it's wasting valuable time. We have to address climate change and other issues. And so since I've left, I'm back at Rumi and, and, uh, and have been driving a new microlearning initiative throughout the pandemic. So a lot of stuff going on. Those two kind of connect they'll dovetail in the end. But yeah, that's a, hopefully a, a bit of a spiel of who I am.
0: And I mean, that's such an interesting story. And like you said, like many others, quite a bit jumping around but at the end of the day, a pretty consistent story. Or when you zoom out by 10,000 feet, it seems like it makes sense, but the day-to-day can always be uh, quite wild. But I mean, around, I guess, green investing or the idea of investing for sustainability, that's a very hot topic now. And like you were saying, there's it can either be seen, some people view it as just a different way of, I guess, painting the ship or changing different ways of investing to really get the best return. Because at the end of the day, some debate, you know, if going green, if it doesn't create a better ROI in the long term, is there value in it? And it's a very deep discussion, but it seems like it's a very hot topic right now. Did, has it, I know you said you were one of the first to really look into and start developing it. What was the big shift? Was it just consumers looking for a different place to put their assets? Or was there initially started off as a good thing, good thing to do? And then like with anything else with time and money, money becomes you know, starts leading it? Or how did that transition happen? Or was it just once you, get, once you know how the sausage is made, it's all the same at the end of the day?
1: It's a little bit of the, of the hat once the sausage is made. I, I wouldn't say that I'm the first person to do it because people have been talking about it for decades in mm-hmm. one you know, way, shape or form. And what ended up happening, what I did have was not, I wasn't the first, but I had the best vantage point because frankly, it's hard to argue with, you know, being a trained investor looking at $9 trillion of investments. Mm-hmm. Cause it, it was all sort of, you know, that the integrating ESG into environmental social and government, into our investment processes was, you know, a, a process that then rolled up to me. Um, and that's a vantage point that lets you see what capitalism looks like like if you have nine trillion dollars across every asset class in geography that's the single best vantage point you're going to get to frankly what capitalism is doing and what's going on mm-hmm. so i wasn't the first at it there was a lot of people who were kind of doing it for decades earlier it was kind of a, a niche mm-hmm. sport in some sense and what happened was you know post-financial crisis right society started kind of getting up in arms more banks were not popular the finance sector was not popular And people were saying, hey, we need to do more about climate change. We need to do more about, you know, uh, uh, inequality and a whole bunch of other important issues that we always hear about. And there's two ways the system can respond. One is to actually change and do the things you want, right? Reduce carbon emissions, like, you know, uh, pay pay workers better and so on and so forth. That's one way it can happen. The other way it can happen is that it can just market and pretend to everyone that it's doing stuff. But underneath, you know, it's pretty much Mm -hmm. the same thing. The second one is happening, and the simple reason that it's happening is because it's not profitable for them to do the things that we need for them to do in society, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's not – there's a fantasy that, like, green investing is necessarily better. I mean, yeah, in a few instances it is, but if that were true, then a Nobel Prize-winning economist wouldn't have said, you know, for decades now that we need a carbon tax, right? Mm -hmm. A carbon tax is specifically because it's cheaper – and more efficient to burn fossil fuels than we need for it to be in society. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was all these big firms got on and they started like grabbing the mantle of saying these, you know, oh, green investing is the future and you can make more money and this, that. And it was largely so that they could, aid, delay taxes and regulation. Because the last thing they want, I mean, obviously finding inequality is going to, in some way, shape or form, involve taxes on the wealthiest, right? They don't want that. Okay. Fighting climate change is going to involve you know, Morgan Stanley estimates it'll be a 50 trillion dollars to decarbonize the world economy, right? The the energy global energy sector is like five five trillion dollars, right? That's not like a wonderful opportunity. It's not like climate change is something we would have wanted if it hadn't happened. Like, oh, this is yeah. great. You know, it's obviously a problem, and a problem costs money to fix. And so, what they're effectively saying is, no, 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 don't worry, we'll fix it ourselves, right? So they're like, oh, we have net zero contributions 2050 right all voluntary on all non-binding all Mm -hmm. effectively marketing and it's because all this stuff costs money for them to do and that's why you know the the this incentives of the system are set up such that you know they um you know it's cheaper to market yourself as doing the right thing than it is to actually change and do the right thing particularly when the people making all the decisions have very 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 short-term incentives, right? They get paid out in the next few years. So they're not really that concerned with what happens in 20 years. I mean, I mean, we all care about it in some form, but if they're getting rich in the next few, they're probably not going to care as much. Um, and so you have an entire system that seems to have designed itself around business and, and financial leaders basically holding off taxes and regulation with one hand, mm-hmm. and then realizing that there's this social angst growing because nothing is happening. Right, every year emissions go up, every year inequality goes up. And they started saying, Hey, why don't we sell people a bunch of products that like seem to, you know, that seem on the surface like they're the solution, even though they're obviously not. And so there's a bunch of products they sell for higher fees that have absolutely no social impact that's any in any way measurable. I know because I was like sitting in, in the machine, it's just it's the financial mechanics of what they're doing. It's they're just moving money around, but it doesn't actually create any impact that wouldn't have otherwise happened. But, you know, they they have an incentive to sell this stuff because these days, if nothing's regulated, every business has an incentive to say that what they're doing is green, right? I mean, frankly, it'd be crazy not to, right? If everybody else is saying they're green and no one's policing it and all the consumers are like, we want more green stuff, then everybody ends up saying it.
0: And I like what you said there. It was like a, a problem costs money to fix. It's it always like how you said, it always sounds like this green problem is almost a can be marketed as a better solution or a way to make more money. But at the end of the day, you have to fix things. And I I mean, it's fair to say, I would assume that no one purposely pollutes because it costs more money. It's because it's cheaper to do so. And kind of wherever the path of least resistance is, is what happens where it follows. Um, And especially how you're saying with the marketing green products, with whatever consumers want, people package up and sell it, even if there is minimal impact. it just sounds better as an investor or as an individual looking at it saying, oh, I'm making a smarter choice, how my choices are impacting the world. That is too many steps steps of separation away from me, but I feel good for at least saying I'm doing the right thing. Um, and we I mean, always look back at it. It's always hard to really, unless you spend the time looking, it's always easier just to sell to the masses with a, I always remember the same thing with like the gluten-free broccoli. Broccoli is always gluten free. Yeah, exactly. You market it as gluten free broccoli, and people are like, "Oh, I'm making a healthier decision," not really realizing that it makes zero difference or impact. It's just a sticker you're adding onto the same product. So, you work within the financial world. You see that it's not, you know, the view from the top is not what it seems. There's, it's not as clear. The impact isn't as isn't as large as you thought you could you could make uh, within the environment. Now, when you were working with Rumi you initially started a few years ago and you were working alongside it. Was the idea always to transition to a full-time or was one of those things as the business grew, you realized, Hey, this is start, kind of a passion. You started to develop more and more.
1: It's a good question for Rumi. I, I, I pledged into it a hundred percent in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I, I stepped back for a few years to the board and someone else took over CEO mm-hmm. while I was at BlackRock. Cause I'd obviously gone back to finance and it was like, you know, 90 hours a week of like just crunching it out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, but uh, at the beginning when I did Rumi, I did go headfirst in and and just dive Mm -hmm. into it because, you know, I think that there's often like there's, you know, a lot of people will do sort of charitable initiatives on the side, right? They'll say, Mm -hmm. I want to raise money for a school and blah, blah, blah country. That's all well and good. I mean, that's great. And it it helps, you know, create impact that otherwise wouldn't happen. But Rumi was a bit different because we weren't like just trying to you know, raise a few bucks and send it somewhere. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of charities that do what I call fundraising and redistribution. We weren't that because we thought, I mean, someone wants to raise a dollar and send it to Kenya. Like that's fantastic. But we were kind of more around the innovation. We were Mm -hmm. saying, listen, there's never going to be enough money to send. So how do we take a dollar and use technology to make it give a hundred dollars of value? And there was an opportunity there because in you know, the last sort of 10, 20 years, mobile phones have sprung up all around the world and they're connecting people who are previously unconnected. So if you're in a rural part of, you know, the US or you're in, you know, some rural part of Kenya or Afghanistan or, you know, an indigenous community in Canada, whatever it is, um, you often don't have all the tools and the connection all to be able to take advantage of um, the free digital learning revolution Right. Because um, all the data shows that there's all these great free learning tools, but it actually seems to increase inequalities in many cases because it, you know, the benefits only accrue to the wealthiest. Right. Oh, the, the the less, yeah, the less affluence, it's not that they lose, they just don't get any gain out of it. And so yeah. and so the gap grows. But um, so we so we said, let, let's let's focus on that. Let's focus on. Seeing if we can use technology to make learning easy, fun, accessible, free. And then, you know, that actually democratizes things. And that that's how it began. But as a result, you know, it was so involved because we weren't just sort of like raising money with a fundraiser and attending mm-hmm. it somewhere. We were trying to like build something different that it had to be a full time gig because it's one of those things where like you just have to roll up your sleeves and, you know, do it and build a team and, you know, go the whole nine mm-hmm. yards.
0: And what? was the idea of kind democratizing learning was that initially how it started was that the impact you want to make or were you just looking at larger issues within society and said hey this is one we feel we can use technology to make a difference with it was kind of the
1: first i mean we you know i, I didn't know exactly how we would do it i mean i <laughs> think that's always a process and evolution it's a product question but what we knew for sure was that the vision was that you could make that right now at this moment in human history, there's an ability to massively drive better educational outcomes because of technology. And on some form, it roots back to the ease of, I mean, so some part of it is like people say like personalized learning, learner centric models, all of that's true. And all of that is stuff we focus on. There's an even simpler way of looking at it, which is that like just the transition, you know, to doing things digitally makes it much easier and less expensive to disseminate information,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Because imagine you're sending paper textbooks to like the corner, some corner of mm-hmm. place in Africa. That's extremely expensive, right? You got to kill a tree, whatever, mm-hmm. the trees, whatever. You have to ship the thing. There's IP costs, there's transport costs. The things out of date in no time. Mm-hmm. Now imagine that that person has a smartphone, which they either do or they increasingly do because it's sort mm-hmm. of the computer of choice for the youngest and the poorest around the world. Mm-hmm. The second they have that device, even if they're connected every now and then, you could send them you know, tons and tons and tons of materials because frankly, it's cheaper to transmit bytes than it is to create books, right? I mean, if you think about it, just imagine the cost of pulp and paper over like 10 or 20 or 30 years, it's like kind of the same, right? And look at the marginal cost to deliver a byte, right? Once you have like internet costs have gone down, hardware costs come down. And so you start to realize that like for a girl in Afghanistan, right? The, you know, having a smartphone or any kind of even a Nokia phone, mm-hmm. it's a lifeline, right? So, and it's a lifeline not just to to you know communications, but also to learning, if it can be packaged and delivered to them in the right mm-hmm. way. And so, as an example, we're doing we're doing programs right now with the largest mobile operator in Afghanistan, and it's actually around bringing the micro learning that we've pioneered, mm-hmm. particularly in the pandemic over the last mm-hmm. year, bringing a fully localized version in Dari and Pashto. Mm-hmm. Um, to communities there. And it happens to be now, ha- ha- you know, rolling out just as mm-hmm. unfortunately the country is becoming more unstable. Right. And that's why it's so much more important because, you know, if people can't, if the Taliban take over, girls can't go to school again. Right. So technology mm-hmm. becomes that much more important.
0: And it's really, it's really interesting. Even if you're looking at um, ways to, like you said, share information, the usage of smartphones and, and digital devices is much larger than you would ever think if you weren't aware of, how accessible certain things can make it, especially a phone. I know, you know they've done obviously a lot of studies, a lot of work over the years to make you know the access to the internet, access to technology one way of allowing like you said, democratize education, but allow for every individual to have better access to the ability to kind of better one situation. Now, one thing, especially with Rumi, that is really interesting is the idea of having that, you know, the bite size. Edu- education a lot, a lot of time I think I remember seeing the videos were or the content is quite shorter in nature which is I like that when you're t- we're talking about bits and bytes and bite size as well all those um you know uh, wor- just words that sound nice together and having everything easily to in ingest or digest how was that always the plan to have a smaller learnings and then individuals can do multiple or how did that come to be what
1: No, it evolved because we realized it was a better way to drive impact. And so, what originally happened was in the early days, we had, um, you know, we we were working in some communities where people didn't have a device yet because this is, we started in 2013. And Mm so, even in the last eight years, obviously, things move fast. So, at the very beginning, people didn't have a device, and we wanted to test it in actually the most difficult places in the world. Mm -hmm. So, we weren't like, Doing it in, you know, a, a rich city in an urban center, we were doing it in like emerging markets and in rural areas, and so, you know, where frankly you could drive the most impact as a starting point because ev- everyone has equal potential, right? But those are the mm-hmm. communities where they're the most deprived, and so they don't get to realize their potential in the same way. So we um, started working there, and we had a low-cost device because people needed some hardware to use. So we worked with a manufacturer in China. We basically, um, it was just a basic Android tablet. And we, you know, had it so you could load a bunch of free learning content. It works offline. And what's interesting is as we evolved, of course, we, you know, got rid of the hardware option because people had their own. And so that's great. You know, you can just, you know, anyone can use it. But what's interesting is at some point we moved from a device that was locked down. It was like our software and you could only do learning stuff on it to saying, oh, this is an app. Now you can just put it on your phone next to everything else and, and use it as much as you want. And it was amazing because we saw in there this massive change in the data where basically you used to see a massive drop-off. If you're locked on to only doing learning content on a device, people will spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, the second that you opened it up and it was on a device with a whole bunch of other things, the usage went down because they were, their attention and time was getting hacked away by other applications, mm-hmm. and in particular, social media. We found social media, like, you know, it's addictive, right? I don't know if you've seen that documentary, The Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Netflix, it, you know, became popular, you know, last year around showing in depth how they're using the data to like hack your brain so that you, you know, you, you want to get a dopamine rush Mm -hmm. and you, and what, you know, what happens is people go and use it for short periods of time, right? Instagram, the average usage time is six minutes, but it adds up to hours and hours a day. And, um, and so we started realizing very early that, the key for doing digital education was not just quality it was engagement
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so think of it this way if you're if you're in a classroom you're you're going through a 60-minute lecture and then seven minutes into it you're like wow this is really boring you can't really leave right like you know what i mean you can't pick out your phone and because the teacher's gonna see you you can't just walk out or climb out of the window right like the social pressure and stuff and so you're kind of stuck there and so if that's the product you're delivering right that lecture in a classroom You don't have to be very engaging because people don't have anywhere to go yeah what you know what's funny is that everybody learned in the pandemic especially in the education space what we had already kind of seen coming from our experiences which is that if you then take that kid and you say oh well you're stuck at home because there's a pandemic so we're going to take the 60 minute lecture we're going to put it online and now you can sit in your bedroom take out your phone and watch you know that lecture it doesn't work because seven minutes in when the kid gets bored they press you know they oh neck thank you and they load tiktok right or or frankly they get a note like a notification like and notifications are specifically engineered at a specific time for the stuff you want like their attention gets hacked away and so they keep switching right mm-hmm. um and so we realized that the only way you can compete with that is by building something that uses some of the same mechanics around engagement but does it for good right so we're not taking it to sell your data, right? Or, or even to sell you additional courses like many ed tech players do. We're just basically saying, look, we wanna take the information and never take it on a personal level. We just wanna take aggregate information and build a better and better learning experience for everybody. And the most important part is when we went to micro by doing it in five or six minute snippets, the data shows, first of all, there's, there's a few studies in the last few years that shows that actually you learn better, right? Mm-hmm. So there's higher learner retention, but the second and more important thing is it's made so convenient and easy, mobile first, five minutes, that people get into the habit of just using it you know, regularly mm-hmm. because they also get a dopamine rush. This is the cool thing. You get a dopamine rush from learning something. But it has to be a discrete skill. So it can't be like I opened the textbook in the middle of the thing and read a few pages and closed mm-hmm. it. It's got to be like a discrete sort of course or a building block. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so far it's worked really well. I mean, we're finding that you know, we did a survey with, um, you know, youth and, 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 uh, and, teens in Detroit and found that the majority of them were actually replacing social media time, uh, okay. when they were using Rumi Learn. Yeah. It's funny. Cause there's no, and it's what we asked them is that there's like, turns out that there's not a lot of competition. Like you're not going to use Coursera or Khan Academy, mm-hmm. you know, for five minutes on your phone when you're on the go. Right. It's really going to be social media. Mm-hmm. That's really adapted that. And so we found that that was actually what we were replacing, which is like an added bonus, right? Because it's frankly, you 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 know, you go from getting a dopamine rush for something that's bad for your mental health mm-hmm. to getting a dopamine rush for like learning something and building yourself up.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, social media is such an interesting thing. I, I just read a book a few months ago called The Hype Machine, uh, with based out of um, one of the top professors around social media, around how not only addicting social media is, but how it's one of those skills to navigate. And I think it's similar to like you were saying, everyone thinks they're very good at being staying on topic and you know, being really strong-willed. You know, they we can wake up early, but social media gets us all. You, no matter who you are, whether it be even with the phone or without a phone, everyone gets distracted. And just being aware of that is so important. But wh- one thing you touched on, which I like to hear, and it's surprisingly rare, is that when tech companies don't use technology to help them, like how you were saying, is you're using your data in an aggregate to make the product better. And a lot of times that sounds simple, like, oh, most companies do it, but it's not as common as you would think, especially when trying to develop a better product. And I like how you initially, like you said, you went through that journey of, okay, education, you know, in that lecture hall, an hour, sometimes three hours. We're going to copy that. Oh, okay, we realize that, like you said, social media is taking the time. How can we make more, not only manageable to consume, But also more beneficial for the individual to not only learn, but to enjoy learning. I think that's one of the challenging things, um, especially over the pandemic, we've seen for a lot of even young students going online, was that the content wasn't built for an online platform. There wasn't the knowledge of the different medium to get the information through, didn't fit. The in-classroom versus out-of-classroom experience is dramatically different, and the content has to change. So how you have many different types of content on a platform. How did you start off figuring out where to focus and then building out from there? How do you continually stay up to date with the content?
1: You know, the, I think there's a few, a few, a few things there. Uh, Firstly, we um, were very demand driven rather than donor driven. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, we're very much like, um, you know, a, a good tech startup. And, you know, in that sense, probably unlike a lot of traditional charities, which, from my experience, they seem to, when they're trying to get institutional funding from foundations and all, they're basically just trying to satisfy what the donor wants. That's problematic because, you know, if you think about it, think of a for-profit private company, right? Imagine mm-hmm. I'm Apple and I'm selling you an iPhone. You have to, like, I have to make sure you like using it. Otherwise, you won't buy it. And, you know, because the buyer and the user is the same person, right? So if they don't like it, they won't buy it and my funding drives up because I don't get any mm-hmm. revenue. Well, if you're a nonprofit. Or your education, you know, player, whatever. Often the person uh, paying for it is not the same as the person using it. So mm-hmm. they're less responsive to the needs of the actual learners, right? Because if you think about it, if the student says, "This sucks, I don't want to be here," it's not like they could, you know, they don't buy the product, and then the company sort of says, "Oh my goodness, we need to listen to them." Yeah. They don't necessarily care, right? Because they're like, "Well, this is what it is." And they're running off, you know, I mean, they listen a little bit to the students, but not a lot because that's not where, you know, that's not who pays the bills. So, you know, for us, what we found was that we needed to be demand driven. And, you know, we went through Y Combinator and all these things. Mm-hmm. Like we were very much adept at like thinking about talking to users. So all of our content, the areas is, are really driven primarily by the community, right? We're, we're growing the community. We have all this feedback. We have a new community. We're starting to grow on Discord. And we just listen to people and they're telling us that, Generally speaking, here's all the stuff they want to learn that is outside of the K-12 curriculum. So the idea is kind of like, what, you know, here's the things you wish you learned in school, but you didn't. Mm-hmm. And there's like a million. There's financial literacy. There's this. You know, there's job skills, how to get a job, what kind of job do you yeah. want. Mental health has become one of the most popular categories in last year. So we're very responsive to needs. Uh, but the coolest thing about how we create the content is that we didn't go and build a whole bunch of micro courses. We instead built sort of a next generation platform to allow like rapid authoring by people in a distributed fashion so that we could start to build a movement of people who, who are actually the authors behind it. So in that sense, it looks a little bit like Wikipedia, right? Mm-hmm. Both because it's driven by a movement of, you know, volu- of people mm-hmm. who really care and they have skills to give and they want to they create content that, that, that distills those skills into micro insights. Mm -hmm. And it's like Wikipedia in the sense that the end result is, you know, it's all nonprofit. It's all open. It's all free. It's all with the goal of building that movement and generating out of it, um, a massive public resource that Mm -hmm. anyone can use. And that levels the playing field for learning by just making, you know, it's like the Wikipedia of micro learning. Mm -hmm. It's all mobile first. It's all quick snippets. And it all is free and open and created by people who, you know, have knowledge to give for the, you know, for the intention of empowering everyone else.
0: Yeah. And, it's really interesting how you said, you know, the organization is really approached like a tech company using data to develop a better product and being product first. I know when you were touching on the fact that a lot of times when it's a charity or you see a non for profit the idea is that you get funding from one institution, your users or people who get benefit from the platform are another organization. So they always have a mixture of where to put your focus. Do you focus on getting more funding? or do you focus on developing a better product? And in the perfect world, those are the same things. But a lot of times, to get one, you have to put all your resources, which are mostly limited, into really focusing either on getting funding or developing a better product. But how you were able to develop the organization, really more as a tech focus, you're able to kind of do both and really develop a better product for everyone to use. And it's funny how you brought up Discord, because I was connecting with uh, quite a few of earlier organizations, around even some brick and mortar ones. And Discord seems to be one of the largest social, I don't know if you consider it social media, but largest platforms for getting feedback, which five years ago, no one's ever heard of or ever used, except for really into the gaming community. So it's interesting how that tool or that platform is also, you brought up as well. It seems becoming more and more popular to essentially get that user feedback. And I know it's similar to, you said similar to Wikipedia style with user generated content. How... And over time, I know some, sometimes it can seem scary because, okay, are they going to develop a good, good learning module? How will the quality be? How, how is quality controlled viewed in that sense? Did you find it was a big issue or is it like many other things? It's a, it seems like a bigger issue than it actually is. Um, it it actually hasn't been that big of
1: an issue, although in fairness, we also do vet everything before it goes up. So Mm -hmm. the difference with us and Wikipedia is really just a quality control, probably on some level, because in in ours, um, you can't a random person can't just come and create something like we have a volunteer community. and, And so people are vetted when they enter so that you kind of have a sense that like, you know, it's just not some mm-hmm. random, like, you know, so that was some level of control yeah. uh, or, or or quality assurance. And then on top of that, when the community creates stuff before it goes up, it's reviewed by other community members, but then we review it also. Right. And so mm-hmm. that way, there's not, it's not like Wikipedia where some anonymous person goes and changes the page and then suddenly it's changed. You know, you, you, there's like multiple steps. And so what we find is that um, that allows us to find the perfect balance of like, engaging a movement of people who really care and they want to contribute but then also making sure that like you know we can do that while you know especially in the early days although i'd say probably always right we we can make sure you know to tell people that hey when you come to Roomy learn like yes it's going to be uh created by people around the world who have skills to give and are distilling it down as a purely open resource because, you know, like, like they want, like, just like Wikipedia authors, they, they want to contribute mm-hmm. something, but also, you know, that it's been vetted and, you know, it has that roomy seal, mm-hmm. so, you know, you know what to expect.
0: That, that's, that's so smart to have that mixture of being able to have user-generated content, but having that quality assurance Um, built-in as well as kind of developing the best of both worlds, but also having that consistent brand image. I know that's always a challenge, especially for a lot of organizations where whether it be community additions or community feedback or community generated content is that sometimes you can lose the idea of what it means to be the organization and what it means to be that brand, that roomy brand with your method, you're allowed to actually have a consistent quality. Now, obviously very data-driven organization. Have you found anything interesting based on like what users are more interested in learning? Is there a, you know, do people start off with financial, you know, financial literacy then get into job seeking? Like, was there any interesting connections based on location or just how the platform is being used that surprised you? Um,
1: uh, there's been a bunch of really interesting insights. Be, I guess the ones I'd say that are, are particularly interesting um, are that, so we really launched it um, mm-hmm about a year ago right so we had you know we pulled it forward i don't even know if it's fully mm-hmm. ready but you know that's kind of the whole game and you know <laughs> yeah. every, all these things right so we're operating for years the, the micro learning piece we we built out and then lo- launched a year ago mm-hmm. and as it's grown we've gone from 50 micro courses at the beginning to like we crossed a thousand a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago and actually we're creating now at, at a rate of like th- like in 40 or 50 a week, right? Because as, as, the, as the community gets going, mm-hmm. right, and, and the movement's growing, which it'll keep accelerating, you just get more and more. And so within that, what we've noticed over the last year is that there's been a lot of interest in mental health content. I think mm-hmm. that's, to be honest, it's what I, I'm, I'm happy to see that. And, you know, I know that that plays a role in something that's mm-hmm. very important in general, and especially during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, a second thing that we've seen that I thought was very fascinating was um, a real deep interest in understanding what careers to take. There's a lot of, I think young people who are sort of like, you know, I don't know what, first they were like, a lot of the content that are coming out I was like, how do you get a job? So there's a bunch of stuff around CVs and this, that. Then it, came, it started to expand into like interviewing, right? Like, okay, interview questions, is that. And we found that the micro courses, you could actually find the specific areas where you could cover it, which was really, really useful particularly Mm -hmm. the people who are like not from the most affluent communities, right? Mm -hmm. If you're from like a really rich community, you don't learn that stuff in school. You learn it through like your parents and your, you know, I mean, like they're getting all the internships and they have all the opportunities. But the kid who is from the worst part of town or in a different school, Mm -hmm. they're covering the same curriculum in the school system, right? But -hmm. then there's all the stuff they don't get in the school system, which are the hard ones are like, how do you actually get a job and stuff? So it started evolving around that. And actually where it's landed now is a series of uh, of courses and, and micro-contents on what career should you even look at in the first place. And that was really interesting to me because what everyone was thinking, they're like, oh, you can just do all these things for free online. Like you can go and learn coding and you can take this Coursera course. blah blah. And the reality was what, what young people were saying was, hey, that's nice that I can go and spend like 10 hours doing a coding course. But like, I'm, I'm at the, I'm at the top of the funnel, right? Like give me five minutes on why I even want to do this as a career. And so mm-hmm. we started creating all those courses and it's like everything from like, do I want to be an arborist to, you know, do, do I want to be a coder? Do I want to be this, that? And it's not as simple as saying like, everybody should be a coder. Everybody wants to be a coder. You know what I mean? Like, like people say that and it's like, give me a break. Like that, that's not going to work. Just, I mean, yeah. mo- we, we probably need more than we had, you know, more in 20 years than we had 20 years ago, but like, that's not the only thing. We Mm -hmm. need that's only not the only thing people want to do. And so a lot of folks were basically at the discovery level. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that was really fascinating to me because that whole series of micro courses came directly out of this demand to Mm -hmm. saying, Hey, you know, I, I just need to figure out what, like a little bit around the different areas before I can even dig in deeper and start to spend more time on involved, non micro learning experiences.
0: And that's really interesting. I touched upon the fact that like, no matter your affluent level, especially in the city, Maybe the curriculum is very similar, but what you learn at home is really where the big difference is. I know there's a lot of studies where the biggest difference between a you know so-called wealthy child and a not-so-wealthy child was the fact that when they went home, the family would help them over the summer stay up to date with their learnings, You know, take the extra time to help them with their homework, develop those skills over the summer so when they came back for grade four, five, or six, they didn't you know, grade. They were at the same level where less affluent families... That's where a lot of the learning was lost. And that's actually what ended up happening was putting individuals behind when it came to universities and other programs as well, Um, which is always interesting because you would think, oh, it's a quality of education. And that does matter. But a lot of times it's the family, like you said, your social upbringing that can make a really big difference, especially with the internships and access to career opportunities. So by the time you are looking for your, your first career, one individual may have had five internships, talk to people in all these different industries they have a strong idea but others might never have had those opportunities and i like how you said everyone's be a programmer it reminds me of when i went to business school every time you go in they said you want to do do you want to be in consulting or do you want to be in finance and i'm and if you say neither they say well those are the two programs that pay the most so that's why you're going to business school to get those so it makes our school look better um and i think it's the same thing with you know in any individual is sure, it's easy. There's a lot of free resources online to become a programmer to learn these skills. But if you don't know what it's about, you don't know what the industry is about or what the job's about, that's a big commitment to take just to figure out maybe programming isn't a skill for you or an industry you'd be interested in. So I kind of find it interesting how your users, it's almost you can see their life cycle in the sense that you know interested in skills, how to apply to a job, how to write a resume, how to then get an interview, what careers to look at. It's almost a, you can almost see the transition throughout the courses and programs to get to someone to get to that job. And then maybe in a few years, there will be, you know, more financial literacy around, okay, how do I savings? How do I do all these other life skills or business skills that weren't really taught within the education system? Have you found that any like any markets more Interested? I know you're you're over many different countries, but have you found certain pockets more receptive to this type of learning, or have you seen over the board quite a large uptick in usage?
1: There, there's a large uptick in usage across the board. I think what's interesting is that the stuff that we were doing in the early days mm-hmm. at Rumi was, um, you know, worked really well in uh, places where people were new to technology. Or there was no alternative and so it created a bunch of impact in that way and it was actually very popular and used a lot in emerging markets mm-hmm. and or, or sort of you know even in in rich countries but then the more in the remote areas the new the stuff around microlearning seems to be successful everywhere right so it doesn't matter if you're even an affluent student sitting in you know downtown let's say vancouver or whatever mm-hmm. you're still as interested in it because it just seems to work for everyone and so that's mm-hmm. so that like we're the micro learning engine we're launching it you know um you know in places around the world in different languages and so it really just seems to be kind of across the board where i would say it's particularly seems to have a lot of traction as is youth right so if you're 15 mm-hmm. to 25 um because the content also besides being micro really the our, our view wasn't to make it micro our view was to make it engaging right mm-hmm. like so that it's not just here's stuff you need, it's here's stuff you need and also you want, right? Yeah. Like it's kind of like watching the news. Like if you watch the news and you find it boring, but then you watch Jon Stewart or Trevor Mm -hmm. Noah or John Oliver, it's like you're watching news, but they're making it entertaining and they're parceling it out in a way that's enjoyable to watch. In some sense, that's a decent analogy for what we're doing with it. Because besides being micro in length, we make sure to like incorporate like just this fun things as memes, there's animated GIFs. There's all kinds of things incorporated in there in addition to it being short and quick and valuable because that's what kind of makes it fun, right? It has to be easy and fun. And then you'll mm-hmm. find that people start replacing social media time with something that you know is good for their mental health. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's, that's so true. I think a lot of times, no matter how good something is, no matter how good the book is, no matter how good a, a way of learning something is, if it's not entertaining and doesn't hold your attention, no one's ever going to do it it's always compared to like eating your vegetables as a child your parents said they're good for you but no one likes to eat them because it's not an enjoyable experience um, until unless you eat Brussels sprouts apparently as a child no one likes Brussels sprouts but when you get older everyone enjoys Brussels sprouts so it's a similar uh, that's an interesting now. I don't remember
1: I don't I think they're okay now I don't remember if I
0: like them or not uh, apparently it's one of those rant. speaking about memes and stuff apparently everyone says they dislike Brussels sprouts or thought they would be Unedible as a child, but when they get older, everyone seems to enjoy them more. But it's really interesting, especially now, speaking with mental health. I, I'm working for a mental health organization currently. It's really interesting to see the uptick, especially within different demographics, to really understanding, kind of focusing much more, almost as in physical health, realizing it's a big part of one's life that they have to only get more education on it, but look into improving it because mental health imp- impacts everything in your life. It's not just uh, one aspect of, of one's life. So absolutely, going forward, I mean, a lot of success, obviously during the pandemic, it's starting to grow all around the world. Is there, I guess, first off, how do you track success or what would you view success in your eyes? Is it number of hours used? Is it reach across the world? Is there a few KPIs or key metrics that you kind of wake up every morning to try to grow?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a few. I mean, uh, obviously we t- we test like learning impact uh, at a micro level, right? So we'll do small mm-hmm. groups with partner organizations and all, both to understand like how how it's creating learning outcomes, and also you know to get user feedback, right? So that we can understand a bit better, you know, how how to use this, when do you use this, what to make it better, and so on. And so that allows us to understand how to make it better and how to make sure that it has maximum you know value yeah. and impact to the learner. Beyond that, I think the biggest thing right now is is really scale, right? Because if you have something that is showing that it can become like a Wikipedia like thing that people really want to use it, people want to help create the content for it. People on, on both sides of that mm-hmm. find it enjoyable. And it's kind of a, a win-win digital knowledge transfer. Mm-hmm. Then um you know then to me I think that the vision is like we we this is it's not about Rumi, it's more about a a bigger movement and that involves lots and lots of people like yourself and myself and mm-hmm. a whole bunch of others, both to you know, some people will, will use the content and, and benefit from it. Some people will be content creators. Some people will just help disseminate and share it. But it's kind of like you know the early days of, of Wikipedia is, where, is was really where the way I think about it is that like this is something now that like is starting to accelerate and scale, and it cre- clearly creates a lot of value for everyone involved in it. So we just really want to build the movement as much as we can.
0: Oh, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, scaling seems like to be very exciting, especially in the near future, as more and more bite-sized, easily digestible information becomes a better way of learning. And more research comes out saying that it is more effective for individuals to retain more information. Um, what does the future hold? I know a lot of expanding, a lot of learning. Is there any, you know, product offerings you're looking to launch in the near future, or any different? Um, demographics or groups you're looking to expand the products to? Yeah, I mean, there's other
1: geographies. I think one of the big things we're also trying to do is to figure out how to work with companies that, you know, really care about making a difference Mm -hmm. in their community. Because the one thing we've figured out is that a lot of the content areas that young people want are, um, you know, around job skills, right? I mean, that's our focus, Mm -hmm. job life and career skills. A lot of those skills companies have and their employees have. And the employees are often looking for ways to, you know, get involved. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've done a number of things with different companies where actually they did purely virtual volunteering, uh, you know, mm-hmm. during the pandemic. And, you know, safely from home, people could work in teams, you know, the whole kind of process we have uh, of running workshops and all. Mm-hmm. And they would distill their insights into micro courses that are aligned to their areas of expertise. So mm-hmm. think about it this way. Yeah. All these companies, like, they want to do volunteer work because you know it's it's good for morale it connects them to the community and so on but they always end up doing it in a non skills based way so they'll take someone who is you know a marketing person and a finance person and a program person and they'll make them all pick up garbage in the park mm-hmm. which you know is is great it's important someone has to do that but you kind of think to yourself well you know that seems to be sort of a, a waste purely honestly from a pure economic perspective it's kind yeah. of a waste right so so we looked at it and we're like wait a second like we have young people who are learners and they're looking to learn around, you know, about finance and about marketing and about coding, right? So why don't we actually take those skill sets and have people help create the content in a way that they can distill their insights into actual um into actual, you know, micro lessons that are extra valuable to people because the learners really appreciate learning skills from the people who actually, you know, do it day to day. And what's really cool is that actually the, the people who are contributing we've done all these like surveys and tests and all, and they, they actually feel a lot better, right? It boosts their morale too, because they like the fact that it's skills-based. They're all, you know, it's a rewarding thing that they like doing. And so that that's really exciting to us because we see an opportunity to grow that mm-hmm. in a way that like creates value for everyone.
0: That's super interesting. I always I always found it inter- funny how, how you said is is you'll have someone who might be a CFO, CMO, some of the greatest brains, especially within marketing, whether it be hiring and they're, spending their time. Obviously, there's a big impact, like you said, picking up garbage or helping out at a car wash or doing things like that. But the without getting too economic or too finance focused, the ROI on giving advice on you know how to grow in an industry or how to develop these skills to help you get the job would be such a larger impact. And I found it interesting how you said those individuals at the same time do enjoy sharing, giving their insights they spent most of their career and life, spending 100-hour weeks to develop, kind of being able to disseminate that that information to other individuals who are truly interested in learning more from them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so much nicer to be able to share with Mm -hmm. the world what you value about yourself and what you know the world values about you, right? Mm -hmm. Where where you have some specific expertise that, you know, makes you kind of special because you spend a lot of time doing it and you know other people need it and you can, you know, you can contribute it to those who who are looking to learn.
0: (laughs) I mean, Your story is truly interesting, kind of going from the finance world, which depending on who you talk to can be seen as negative or evil to almost a, uh, I mean, much more non-for-profit focus and really a a whole transition through a kind of having your eyes, kind of seeing a bit of everything. I think that's one of the benefits of having individuals work with non-for-profits who have a corporate experience, because at the end of the day, finance and having a way of sustaining a business financially is important if there's no money to fund something or to get things moving it's very hard to make any impact or having at least knowledge of that is truly important but um for individuals who are interested in Rumi, kind of getting involved learning more about the program or kind of what the organization is doing what's the best place for them to learn more
1: i think the first place that they they i would recommend people start is to Go to Rumi.org, do it on your phone or whatever, right. whatever you're on, R-U-M-I-E.org, and just check out microlearning. Find mm-hmm. a byte that you like and share it with someone, right? Because that's actually what I first started doing. And, and it's you know, I don't I don't think I created <laughs> the growth by doing this, but but I, I found it personally rewarding was that I found like a million different like tons of different bytes I liked. Mm-hmm. Bytes are this micro courses. One of my favorite ones was uh, this micro course on the benefits of taking handwritten notes. And it's funny because I had gone to like typing out every single note I would do. And then I'd heard kind of people starting to push back and say, well, actually, there's cognitive benefits of writing stuff down. Mm-hmm. And so this micro course had all that information in there, right, about, you know, really super quick. But it made it super easy to understand, like, there are benefits to writing by hand because mm-hmm. for a bunch of reasons, people seem to retain the information. But like your mind remembers it better. And so mm-hmm. anyway, I really love that bite. So I just pressed the button and started sharing it. You can share it through whatever you want. So I sent it through yeah. WhatsApp to family members and then they got all excited and then they started finding their own they mm-hmm. like so i would tell people check it out find a bite that you like and share it with one person and honestly that's kind of like it's all open and free right so the more we kind of do that 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 would be great and the other thing is people could follow us on social uh where Rumi learn or i am at uh i'm so so fancy which is because my last name's fancy and so fancy was taken yes. <laughs> fancy was taken so fancy taken but so so fa- i doubled down so so fancy was open so you know, if you follow us, we'll, we'll share a lot more information. And mm-hmm. one of the areas we'll start sharing more information is actually on how the economic system works. So to tie back mm-hmm. the conversation to sustainability, mm-hmm. how do you create social change? Well, you have to empower people with knowledge so that, so that they know, not just that like we need to fight climate change, but like, how do we actually do it, right? So that we're not in a world where everyone keeps talking about it. And yet every year emissions go up. Mm-hmm. And so I'd seen inside the middle of the machine, how it is not changing because we're not pulling the right levers which for the most part you know relate heavily to to the need for government regulation um but um but of course i was i turned my left and turned my focus back to Rumi, and then it's sort of the perfect intersection right because we know that we can use micro learning to help people understand more and more how the system works and therefore how we can you know work together to change it for the better
0: and, and it's so, it's so interesting. I do think climate change is always a, a hot topic, but fully understanding how to make an impact is so important because talking is good, but action is always seen as better. Um, especially as time is running out, it's getting more and more serious as every day goes by, but I just want to thank you again for coming on this show and kind of sharing your story and especially the impacts you're trying to make, uh, across the world.
1: My pleasure. Great being here and chatting with you.